Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. How are we doing? We are continuing a series called The Christmas Tree, where we are looking at the family tree of Jesus. On the note of family trees, any Ancestry.com people in here? Big? Two of you? Really? Are you guys just afraid to admit? It's a, it's a safe place, guys. It's okay. Any 23 and me? I feel like that's on the similar vein and line. Okay, well, for the two of us interested in Ancestry.com, my family uh, had some interest, but there was a problem in terms of going, if you're not familiar, Ancestry.com has basically a place where you can go and type in your information and get your family tree spread out and find out kind of your ancestors and who makes up your family tree. Now, my family, we knew, had arrived, the Marvin family in Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, like in the 1700s, there's even a statue in some small town of Matthew Marvin that you know, exists out there, but we never really emotionally connected with that because we knew that my grandfather was adopted. That in uh, you know, early 1918-ish, my grandfather was adopted and so we just never knew who was actually our bloodline or I never knew who my bloodline was until a couple years ago when my uncle went on basically a ancestor bender and decided he was gonna find out who exactly our family tree was. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my uncle. My uncle is probably the closest person I know in real life to the character Kramer on Seinfeld. <laughs> he is an artist by trade. He married my aunt and he makes art out of recyclables. So he has a sugar mama that helps you know make the ends meet. And he decided I'm gonna find out who exactly is the family tree or the actual people that our bloodline comes from. And when I say like Kramer, I mean, it, this is to the, his eccentricness. This is one example of, he would, he would say, man, I don't even trust ancestry.com. The government is all over that. And so he decided I'm going to go on my own and you would go into his house and he had on the wall, just a spider web of people that made up the family tree that he'd been tracing down. And he had called, he'd interviewed from small town, Kansas. He had found a postcard, true story off of eBay. He just went full detective mode. I'm going to discover who our actual family is. And it worked. He found out who our parents were. Turned out, in this small town in Kansas, a couple of high school kids had gotten pregnant. And in the early 1900s, in that scenario, you really had a couple options. You would either do a shotgun wedding and quickly get married, or you would place the child for adoption. And so my grandfather was placed for adoption. And it looked just like often was the case in those days where he was placed on the doorstep of the local town doctor. Now, we didn't know any of this until my uncle Kramer went to town and found out exactly who our family was and who had been grafted in to the Marvin family. This scandal that led to somebody from the outside being included in our family. Now, what does it have to do with what we're talking about this morning? Well, we've been walking through the family tree of Jesus and this morning we're gonna see another example that Matthew goes out of his way to highlight God had included in the family tree of the savior of the world. That just like in that scenario where somebody who was not of the original bloodline, but was grafted or brought into our family, something very similar happened in Jesus's family tree. 
If you missed last week, I'd highly encourage you to go get the app and you can listen and you can catch up. But we've just been tracing through because Matthew goes out of his way in Jesus's family tree in Matthew chapter one, as he's starting to talk about the Messiah and the savior of the world, he's writing the genealogy and he goes out of his way in a way that almost seems unnecessary to highlight, to point out some of the more scandalous broken branches in the tree of Jesus. And as we mentioned last week, it's because Matthew knew they were not just part of Jesus's family tree. They were the point of the story he was about to write. God's heart for all people. God didn't just come for sinners in terms of his humanity. He came from sinners because there is only sinners. And this morning is no different. So we're going to look at another one of the people that God went out of his way to include. And this comes from Matthew chapter one. We read most of it last week. So I'm just going to pick up after reading verse one in verse five. But it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. Now, last week we talked about Salmon who married Rahab. And it says this in verse five, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Once again, he did something very uncommon. In genealogies, you didn't mention who the mother was. You pointed out who the man was. And yet he does it again, not just with Rahab the prostitute, but with Ruth, who we're going to discover who she is by looking at the story of Ruth. And in doing so, discover how God worked through this woman and really how God is at work today. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to Ruth chapter one. And let me set the stage for the book of Ruth. I'm going to just play the movie, so to speak, and run through four chapters of the book of Ruth. But because we don't have enough time to read every single verse and talk about every single one, I'm going to just summarize certain sections and play the movie and then give two takeaways that come from the story that are relevant to all of us, no matter what we're facing or what we're walking through in life. But Ruth, if you were to categorize it as a movie would fall into a very specific genre. There's different genres of movie. There's the action movies. If you're an action fan, there's the thriller movies. Any thriller movie fans out there? Good, one. We got one ancestor.com, one thriller. You guys need to wake up and have some coffee to participate this morning. <laughs> any um, any uh, romantic tragedy people, which I don't know who would really love romantic tragedies, but people love them. The Titanic, Romeo and Juliet, just tale as old as time. Then there's the rom-coms, any romantic comedy people in the room. Okay, great, yeah. Every movie with Matthew McConaughey in it. And this, if you were going to pick a genre, would for sure fit into either the romantic, it, it wouldn't even call it romantic comedy, I'd call it romantic reality. It's by far one of the more romantic books of the Bible, the story of Ruth. Now it took place during the days the judges ruled. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, the, the book of Judges is like, it makes Game of Thrones look incredibly tame. I mean, it's just crazy what happens during those days. It's all repeated throughout the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so carnage just happens for 16 chapters. And the book of Ruth takes place at the very same time that the judges ruled. And yet it was such a contrast that scholars at one point have said that the two books were combined, but because you had on one hand, Game of Thrones, and then it was like the notebook, somebody came along and said, we need to separate these two. And so we're going to look at the story, the beautiful story, romantic story of Ruth, but it takes place when the judges ruled. And I'll explain why that's significant. 
Now, when I think of reading a scripture and we're going through, there's really three main characters. And because my brain works this way, I'm just going to invite you into that. I will think of different modern day actors if I was making a movie of the book of Ruth, who I think would play. And so here's the actors that I picked. You can take them or leave. And you got Gal Gadot. She's going to be our Ruth for the day. Then because Matthew McConaughey is in every single rom-com that exists, he, of course, is going to fill in. And then there's Naomi, who plays this older woman who uh, has some tragic events happen, and she ends up saying, you know, call me bitter or call me Mara. And, um, you know, Maggie Smith is just the one that came to mind. You fill in with whatever characters you want. But if that helps you, it helps me. So we're going to be in Ruth chapter 1. When the judges ruled, it says this. In the days... When the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came on the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name, we're told, was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi, Maggie Smith. Their two sons were Malon, and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem. They were part of that tribe in the land of Judah. When they reached Moab, they settled there. So we're told, this is how the movie starts out. There's a man and his wife and his two sons that leave the promised land, which they were not supposed to do. These are Israelites. They leave the promised land of God and they decide we're going to leave because there's a famine. That's an economic downturn. Things are really bad. We're starving. So we're going to pick up and we're going to leave the promised land and go to the land of Moab. What's the land of Moab? The Moabites lived in Moab. The Moabites were the enemies of the people of God. They decide we're going to pick up, we're going to leave, and we're going to live among the enemies of the people of God who who worshiped a foreign God who demanded child sacrifice. I mean, this is clear disobedience was not God's will for this family at all. And yet this is the story that's happening. The name of the two sons, Malon and Kilion, literally means sick in Hebrew. It means sick and tired. So this man, that's a true story. Can't make this stuff up, people. Sick and tired and Naomi and Elimelech pick up, they move to the land of Moab. Then verse three, tragedy further strikes. Elimelech died. Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. They, uh, once again, disobedient. God had prohibited them from marrying foreign people because he did not want them to worship foreign gods. And yet they married these Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, which feels like a Oprah, there's something with Oprah there. I'm not taking the bait here, people. And then another <laughs> married a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion, sick and tired, died. Then Naomi, they, this left Naomi alone without her two sons and her husband. I mean, immediately early in the story, tragedy strikes. And I've made you know, jokes, but this is a real story about something that really happened there's an economic downturn to the point where they're starving. So they pick up and leave and then they marry and they find themselves in a foreign land and Naomi has her husband die. And then shortly after that, her two sons die. Now to us, that's a big deal. But to her, this was devastating, catastrophic, not just for the immediate emotional impact, but because in that day and age, there was no 401k. The way that you would have retirement would be you had children, they were the provision that, hey, I'm, I don't have a 401k. I have you. You're going to take care of me when I get old. And now Naomi is in a foreign land, has no husband, has no children to look after her in her future, is too old to have children. 
and tragedies over and over are all over this story. So she decides, hey man, I gotta pick up and I gotta go back to Israel. I gotta go back to Bethlehem and decides, I'm gonna go back and tells her two daughters, hey, I've got nothing for you. You're young, you should get remarried, but I've gotta go back to my own people and we're not related anymore. You're, you were my daughters-in-law and now you're just kind of women. You should go get married. And Orpah at first is like, no, we'll stay with you. And she uh, further, Naomi insists, no, you should go. And she's like, okay, deuce. And Ruth, she's told, clings to her and says, I'm not gonna leave you. I'm gonna care for you. And wherever you go, and you probably have heard the line that Ruth responds with. It's read at many weddings. weddings. It's one of the more beautiful lines in the entire book and arguably one of the more beautiful lines in all of scripture where she responds with this loyal love and says this, in response to Naomi saying, hey, leave, go marry someone. She says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. The Ruth says, I'm going with you. And not only that, it's a moment of conversion. I am worshiping your God. I'm going back to Israel with you. Which would have also come at cost to Ruth. You think about Ruth of now, if her prospects of getting remarried, she is this woman attached to her for the rest of her life. That, hey, if she wanted to get remarried, now any potential suitor knows, hey, just for the record that you know, it's not just me, it's me and this old woman. We're a package deal together. If you marry me, you're also taking this in. And she's, who's that? Is that your mom? No, it's not my mom. It's actually my dead husband's mom. And we're a package deal. And despite that, Ruth said, I, I'm gonna bring you and I will care for you and I will be a part of your life for the rest. So they head back from Israel and it says this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman, Again, the Moabites, the enemies of the people of God. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. We're told at the end of the chapter, we don't have time to fully read it, but we're told that as Naomi and Ruth arrive, the town comes out and they haven't seen Naomi in 10, 11 years. And they're like, Naomi, Naomi's back. Naomi, welcome back. And she responds and says, don't call me Naomi. I love the Bible. So honest. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has made my life bitter. Naomi means sweet. In response to that, she tells the town, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. Because God is, and she wrongly attaches God as responsible for her pain. God has made my life bitter. He's taken my husband, he's taken my sons, my life is bitter. And they set up shop and they get to wherever they're gonna live and they realize, hey, we don't have anything to eat. And so Ruth decides, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna glean in the field. We're told this, one day, Ruth the Moabite, verse two of chapter two, said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields and pick up stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. (laughs) Naomi said, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. As it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged, here's our Don Juan, to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law. So Gal Gadot goes out to harvest some grain, finds herself in Matthew McConaughey's farmland. 
Now, what's happening? Well, gleaning, this is a brilliant practice that God instituted. There's a practice in the Levitical law that established that when you had crops and you were a farm society, when you would go to harvest your crops, you had to leave a certain percentage of your crops on the ground, that you could not take all 100% of all of your crops. You had to leave a certain amount of your crops on the ground as a provision for anyone who is impoverished to be able to come and pick up those grains. It was God's original or the first established welfare system. Brilliantly, God said, hey, when you harvest, you have to learn or you have to leave a certain amount. You have to leave the edges of the field so that anyone who is in hard times like Ruth and like Naomi or any foreigner who's traveling that doesn't have provision can stop and pick up the food. So Ruth, is, knows this, or maybe her husband mentioned this, she goes out to glean from what was left behind. And she just so happens to find herself in the field of Boaz. And the text over and over uses the language as it happened, or it just so happened, as though it's pointing out clearly the sovereignty of God, that she just happened to be in the field of Boaz. Just then, Boaz arrives, it says, verse four, while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he says to everyone working in his field. And the Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Which is just a funny exchange. Clearly, Boaz was a well-liked guy. And you know that because think about what just happened. He shows up from work and he's like, the Lord be with you. And everyone pops up out of the harvesting. The Lord bless you. Be like at your office. Your boss shows up and is like, the Lord be with you. Everyone pops out of their cuticles. The Lord bless you. And that's what just happened with Boaz. And Boaz realizes there's someone that he doesn't recognize in his field, that he would like to recognize a little more and says this. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? This is the closest probably biblical verse to Joey from Friends going, how you doing? (laughs) And the man tells him, that is Ruth. He explains basically who she is. And so he goes over and the romance begins. He goes over and he tells Ruth, hey, I want you to come every, anytime you want food, you come to this field. I've already told all the harvesters, I'm going to protect you. I want to provide for you. If you're thirsty, we're going to give you something to drink. Anything you need, you come to this field. A little time goes by during that same day and it's lunchtime. And we're told that Boaz invites her to lunch. And the detail is amazing. We're told about their very first date and that they sit down and it says they have roasted bread and oil and vinegar. They're sitting essentially at Macaroni Grill and Boaz is like, so where are you from? And they're having their first date and things are going well and they're progressing. And at the end of the date, Boaz says, true story, go back and read all this this week. He says, hey, I'm going to give you food, not just anytime you want to come here and eat it, but he loads her up with 40 pounds of food. So she now has a shopping cart of food that she's bringing home back to Naomi, that he loads her up with tons of food. And so she brings it back home and she gets to Naomi and Naomi is saying, where's all this food coming from? Where did you get all of this? And Ruth responds and says, hey, it's from Boaz. Oh, I missed one of the parts of the love story that let me go back. After responding or after being given all that food, she, verse 10, we're told, falls at his feet and graciously or warmly thanks him. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So now we understand why he's loading her up with food and he sends her on his way. 
And she gets back home and Naomi is told that it was Boaz. And she says this, may the Lord bless him. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he is showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. This man is one of our closest relatives. He is one of our family redeemers. I'm gonna explain what that means. And it's like a family redeemer was basically, God had established similar to the welfare system. God had these different laws that brilliantly took place as a way to provide and care for his people. And the family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, was somebody that God had basically established that if there was a widow that takes place or a woman is uh, of childbearing age, and she's married and her husband dies, that God had a succession plan for who had the right to then step in and marry that woman so that the bloodline would continue. And she's basically saying, hey, he's one of the people that is an option. This is this basically her going into matchmaker mode of going, girl, this, this is, you got a chance with this boy. This guy is an option for you, girl. He's one of our family redeemers. That he could be your, your Boaz, your beau, your boo, essentially. <laughs> And she does what any good matchmaking mom or many matchmaking moms do is she begins to go into, man, we're going to make this happen, girl. And so she has a plan. This is that mom. Chapter three, we get introduced to Naomi's plan. And she basically says, here's what we're going to do. And she walks through, this is the plan. And this is a way that you can show him that you're available and you're interested and you're willing. And so the step one of the plan is, hey girl, you got to go shower because you smell like the field. We want you to smell like a girl. So you're going to go shower and you're going to get clean. True story. I'm not making any of this up. It's in the story, people. It says, you got to go clean yourself up. She Go get clean. We're going to get you some perfume on. And you're going to, at night, you're going to go to where he's uh, basically working with the grain and he'll be asleep. And you're going to pull back the covers on his feet and you're going to lay on his feet. Now, side note, this is not prescriptive for anyone single in the room or God's instructions on how to find a husband, but it is what happens. And there's a lot of custom stuff that's happening. And so I'm just telling the story here, people. And Ruth is like, wait, pull the covers, first clean up. How bad do I smell? And and then I have to pull the covers back and I'm going to lay on his feet and say, you sure that's going to work? It'll work. You just trust me. We're going to do this. And so that night, Ruth cleans up, goes when Boaz is asleep and she uncovers his feet and lays at his feet. We're told that Boaz is startled, as you would expect, and realizes in the dark, somebody's at his feet, and he says, who are you? And she said, verse 9 of chapter 3, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. This is basically like Ruth quoting Beyonce and saying, if you like it, you should put a ring on it. You are a family redeemer, an option for me. And Boaz, we're told in the story, was, was for sure interested in fact, he felt like unworthy to be a husband. And so the love story continues and they decide, wow, we could really get married and this could be incredible. And then Boaz realizes there's a, there's a hitch, there's a problem. Just like any good love story, there's a problem that's involved. And the problem was there was a family redeemer who was closer in the succession plan than Boaz, who had the first right of refusal essentially to marry Ruth. And that Boaz could not be the family redeemer unless he refused that right to marry her. And so Boaz, we're told, just happens to be walking through town. And that other family member, again, just happened to walk by. And Boaz approaches him and asks, hey, are you interested in marrying Ruth? And explains the scenario. 
And at first, the guy is like, oh, yeah, maybe. And we're not told all the details, but he eventually changes his mind. Maybe Boaz, you know, tries to talk him out of it, of like, are you sure? I mean, she's pretty homely. I don't know that I'd be interested in her. And he eventually says, you know what? She comes with that woman, uh, Mara. I'm not interested. And so the other family member declines, and Boaz gets to marry Ruth. And we're told this in chapter 4. Then Boaz said to the elders of Bethlehem and the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son and carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are witnesses of all of this today. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. She gave birth to a son. The neighbor women around said, verse 17, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of King David. It's an amazing story. It's a beautiful story. It's the story that God would write to bring about the grandmother of King David, the grandfather of King David. It's a story that includes a lot of turns. And in it, I just want to give us two reminders that we really see from this story that has a lot of hills and a lot of valleys. And two reminders, and then we'll wrap up. The first reminder is that God is at work in the details. God is at work in the details. He's at work in the details of your life. He's at work in the details of my life. That God was sovereign over all of this. God was sovereign over, despite their disobedience, to move to that place. God was sovereign over a famine driving them to go to Moab. God was sovereign over the tragedy that struck and that brought Naomi back. God was sovereign over her just happening to be in the field of Boaz. There was a lot of fields she could have stumbled into. God was sovereign over the fact that Boaz was still single. God was sovereign over the details of the story and over her life. And God is sovereign and God is at work in the details of her life and of your life and of my life. That God is at work in the details of where you work, of who you are. Psalm 139 says that he is sovereign and he knit you together. Everything about you from the color of your hair to the color of your eyes to the color of your skin tone to everything about you, God wove together. David says that you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Jesus would say that every hair on your head is numbered by God. So don't be afraid, Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, for you are worth more than many sparrows. That the very number of hairs that you have, God knows he is at work. He's a God who's not distant, but is at work in the details, just like he was with the story of Ruth just like he was when the unnamed family member declines to marry her, that God was at work in the details. And he's still at work in the details. That God is at work in the details of where you work. And it can be easy to believe, no, he's not at work. I didn't even want to work at the place I work. I work here because uh, we got transferred or there was a job change and I don't even want to be here and miss the fact that God is at work in the details. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, God places lights, that's us as believers in him, very intentionally to be a light for him. He is at work in the details of the hearts of people. The Proverbs say that God and the king's heart, Proverbs 21 verse one, the king's heart and the hand of the Lord is like rivers of water that he is sovereign over and turns hearts wherever 
they move. He is sovereign over the fact that you live now in 2023. You could have lived in a lot of times. Acts chapter 17, Paul's giving a speech and he says that God appointed from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands, that it is not an accident or a mistake that you live when and where you do. Because God is at work in the details. I was at lunch not long ago and I remember we had planned to eat at this one restaurant and we arrived, the friend that I was meeting for lunch and it was so packed that I was like, man, it's just gonna be forever. Let's just go next door. There's a restaurant right next door and we walk in and it's quiet and there's no one there and sat down and it hit me as the waitress was serving us, man, I think that God wanted us to move from that packed restaurant or had it be so packed, we decided to come here so that Sarah was her name so that we could share the gospel with you, Sarah. Has anyone ever told you about what it means that the Bible actually teaches or what a Christian actually is? A lot of people think it's, it's a person who does a lot of good things or you attend church a certain amount. And that's not true at all. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Christianity has ever taught. Certainly not what Jesus came and died for. Bible teaches that a Christian is someone who trusts not in themselves, but in what Jesus did on the cross. And I think that God had that restaurant be so packed next door that we planned and had on our calendar to eat at so that we would not eat there and we'd walk over here because God wants you to know he hasn't forgotten you. And he loves you so much that he gave his life for you because God's at work in the details. He's at work then and he's at work now. In fact, God cares about the details. How do I know that? There's lots of Christmas songs people sing at Christmas. One of my favorite songs that people sing, Mary, Did You Know? Anyone, anyone else? Then the two people, I'm sure consistently. I didn't know that people made fun of this song still <laughs> in the green room. I was like, I love that song. Mary, Did You Know? And uh, you think about that Christmas song, what did Mary know? We don't know. But we do know one thing that she knew. She knew that her son, Jesus, cared about the details. Why do I say that? The very first miracle Jesus performs comes from John chapter two. It's a very peculiar ministry. If you're gonna have an inaugural ministry launch, an inaugural miracle take place, and the miracle, it doesn't have to do with giving sight to the blind or allowing lame people to walk or healing a leper. It has to do with catering. She shows up and Jesus is at a wedding reception and we're told that they'd run out of wine. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, we need you to do something. And then she turns to the servants that were working the party, the catering company, and says, just do whatever he says. And Jesus says, go fill up those six, um, basically, containers with water and it'll turn into wine. Jesus, what did Mary know that would cause her when this party, that wasn't even Mary's party, to go to Jesus and say, hey, will you do something? Will you help here? She knew that God cared even about the details. He cares about the details of your life. I mean, think about it. She knows God cares about the catering? God, Jesus cares about the alcohol at this party? She says, oh, what did Mary know? She knew that Jesus cared about the details, the small things in your life, the cares that you have. First Peter chapter five, we covered a couple of weeks ago, it says, cast everything you care about on God because you're what he cares about. Because God cares about the details in your life and in my life. And then finally... God is at work when it doesn't look like it. God's at work when it doesn't look like it. And nothing about this story feels like a God moment. A man, it's disobedient, picks up and leaves. Death and destruction enter into the family and all of a sudden now out of that disobedience, she's now a widow in a foreign land 
A famine taking place is like a great depression happening. And there's sorrow at every turn. And yet God was at work the whole time. Even Naomi couldn't see it. I mean, she was not going, oh, this is a God thing. This is clearly a God thing. At one point she says, call me bitter. God has made me bitter. And yet when you pull back from the story, you see that God is at work, even when it doesn't seem like it. A few years ago, I got invited to a Texas A&M football game and I got seats. Whoop, yep. And I, my seats were on the ground level. And it was a great game and you got to see seats and sit in a place that we just don't get to see sit often or haven't. And at halftime, something happens at A&M Games, the band comes on. And unlike at other schools where I feel like everybody immediately just goes for the nachos, uh, the Texas A&M band is like a big deal. So you watch the band. And I'm watching the band on the field and I'd never seen it from this perspective before because I'm at the ground level. And when you watch a marching band at the ground level, it doesn't look like it does from the aerial view. It looks like total chaos. I mean, you're just watching like the tuba marching right towards the trombone. You're like, what is happening right now? This is, so. this is... <laughs> lost it. This is crazy. And then you look up at the TV screen or the jumbo screen. And when you see it from above the aerial view, everything that looks so chaotic and broken and dysfunctional and messed up at the ground level, you see it from above and you realize, oh, they're making a T or they're doing a flag or there is purpose. Despite the fact that on the ground, it looks total chaos, it looks like total chaos. Yet when you see it from above, you see there is purpose, intention, detail. God is at work even when it doesn't seem like it. And I know there's a lot in this room of chaos and brokenness and pain and heartache and regret, just like there was in this story. And there's a lot of seeing it from the ground level in a lot of ways that we can't see it from above. And we can't see the ways that the attention to detail and there was purpose behind all of it. But in the story of Ruth, in the story of the Bible, when over and over God says that one day we will see it. In Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11, it says he will make everything beautiful in its time. And candidly, I don't know how that's possible. I don't know how it is possible for broken homes to be something that God attaches purpose to. For abuse to be something that God weaves back and brings beauty from those ashes to. But I know in the story of Ruth, we're introduced to the fact that that's who our God is. He's a God who's at work, even when it doesn't seem like it. In the darkest time, which is the book of Judges, the darkest chapter in Israel's history, God was at work. The first time the Bible mentions the word hope is in Ruth the darkest chapter and some of the darkest days of the nation. And yet God was at work. In fact, what Matthew would say, who's writing the genealogy and those dark days and the dark pain that this family was walking through, God was at work because he's at work when it doesn't seem like God was decorating for Christmas because he was preparing the lineage of his son, because he's a God who's at work, even when it doesn't seem like it. There is an analogy that I'll use that this is a cake. Lots of people like cake. This time of year, people are baking and making delicious things. 
And a lot of people would probably be interested in cake if I offered it to this room. I can't because I've got a second service that I'm gonna need this at, but <laughs> what makes a cake? What makes something so sweet? Well, it's a combination of ingredients that are anything but really sweet. Generally speaking, I mean, if I was to offer these separate ingredients that made this cake to you, you probably would decline them. If I was to offer, hey, would anyone like to eat a stick of butter? You'd probably say no. If I was to offer, hey, would anyone like to just have a, a cup of flour to eat? You probably would say no. But you take all of those ingredients that some are bitter and some are just gross. Would anyone want a raw egg? You'd probably say no. And in the hands of a master baker, they make something sweet. I don't know how every story in this room in the hands of God, who's a master creator, how every tinge of bitterness is gonna get woven together and be sweet. But I know that when we bring and place those things in his hands, in this life or the next, God will make those things sweet. And the story of Ruth shows it. And candidly, she got to connect some of the dots that probably most of us won't in this life, but one day you're gonna see it from above and everything chaotic and broken, he will make beautiful in its time. My family, as I've shared before, has been walking through a chapter that is certainly the darkest one that we've walked through. Friday, we met with a uh, care specialist for end of life. Basically the doctor you meet with to have a plan for how to care for a child that will likely go be with Jesus shortly after she's born. And I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why a surprise baby would have a trisomy 13 that makes her incompatible with life. I don't know how any of that fits into God's plan, but I know it does. And he will hear my daughter either miraculously in the womb or when she gets to heaven with Jesus. And in the meantime, he's at work. He's at work when it doesn't seem like it. And one day I'm gonna see it from above. And I don't know what you're walking through. And it may make everything that anybody else in your life is walking through just pale in significance. And I don't know what pain or what regret or what you've experienced. But I know when we trust him and we bring those to him and eventually with him, he will make everything beautiful in its time because he's a God who's at work in the details and he's at work when it doesn't look like it. Ultimately, let me close here. This story is about Jesus. Just like every story in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 24. He's walking along the road with two of his disciples and he's walking and he says, hey, have you never heard, no one ever explained that all of the Old Testament is about me? And it says, beginning with Moses, all the, through all the prophets, he explained how all of it was pointing to him. This story very clearly points to Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, think about the different turns. The climax of the story is a birth of a baby boy in Bethlehem. Sound familiar? Boaz is called the Lord of the harvest. It's like Jesus is called the Lord of the harvest. Boaz is the redeemer of this enemy of the people of God. And through his redeeming, he makes the enemy of the people of God a part of the family of God. Just like Jesus is the redeemer of all people who Romans chapter five says were enemies to him that by trusting in him and his death and resurrection in your place are welcomed and transformed from enemies to family of the people of God. 
the story over and over points to Jesus, that he is the redeemer of anyone who would trust in him. And if so, of course, as Matthew's writing out the family tree and writing to a Jewish audience, of course, he's going to go out of his way to say, oh, by the way, and the great-grandmother, great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus was the foreign enemy of the people of God that God wove into the story because he's a God who works out and makes things beautiful in its time. He works in the details and transforms enemies into his family for anyone who trusts in him. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.